Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is always advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season six, episode two, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1973 mystery, horror, and musical, (laughs) The Wicker Man. (laughs) (laughs) It was written by Anthony Schaefer and directed by Robin Hardy. It stars Christopher Lee, Edward Woodward, Britt Eklund, Ingrid Pitt, and Diane Salento. The film is very loosely based on David Pinner's novel Ritual. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. In the late 1950s and into the 60s, actor Christopher Lee appeared in an abundance of Hammer horror films. Now, in case you're unaware, Hammer Film Productions is a film company based in London, and they are best known for their series of gothic horror pictures, and they still make films to this day. Lee was frequently cast as the monster in these films, including Frankenstein's monster in The Curse of Frankenstein, Count Dracula in The Horror of Dracula, and Karis in 1959's The Mummy. By 1970, Lee wanted to break free of these types of roles and take on parts he deemed more interesting. He would get his chance when he met with screenwriter Anthony Schaefer, who explained to Lee that he had written a character with him in mind. Schaefer mentioned to Lee that this new script was titled The Wicker Man. Lee, who had always been interested in the occult, knew right away that it was a film about druids. Ew. According to Stephen Applebaum, Schaefer had a series of conversations with director Robin Hardy, and the two decided that it would be fun to make a horror film centering on quote-unquote old religion in sharp contrast to the Hammer films that were popular in the last decade. Schaefer wanted the film to be a little more literate than the average picture. He specifically wanted a film with a minimum of violence and gore, and he said that he was tired of seeing horror films that relied almost entirely on viscera to be scary. Schaefer read the David Piner novel Ritual, in which a devout Christian policeman is called to investigate what appears to be a ritual murder of a young girl in a rural village. And that's the only thing about the book that even remotely resembles the film. (laughs) You mean there's no scene of a girl slapping a wall the next bedroom over? Weird. (laughs) I find myself singing Willow's song on a regular basis, though. (laughs) I mean, like, it's probably something that I would listen to in my spare time. But I don't know. In this context, it's just so awkward. (laughs) It's so strange. Slapping the wall. Oh, my God. (laughs) Slap, slap, slap. Well, okay, so anyway, that's the only thing that is uh, similar to the film, is is the very basic part of the plot. Both Schaefer and Hardy have made comments about the book being unfilmable. Wow. And listen, I haven't read the book myself, but if the reviews online say anything, it's that, well, maybe it's a good thing it's only loosely based on the original story. Yikes. Yeah, the reviews are pretty brutal. I almost bought it because I was like, oh, I should read it before we do this episode. And I looked at the reviews and I was like, I am not spending money on this book. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So I can't say for myself, but that's that's what other people are saying. So another source of inspiration for the film was James Frazier's The Golden Bough, which is a study on pagan mythology and religion. 
However, Frazier's novel has come into question on whether or not it's historically accurate. And, you know, we're going to talk more about this later. The film had a measly budget of 500,000 pounds, which equates to a little under 65,000 in today's U.S. currency. So there w- it was a pretty cheap film. Yeah. The production's budget was so low that they couldn't afford to pay Christopher Lee his rate. So as a favor, Lee declared that he would do the film for free. Wow, what a nice guy. I know. So Edward Woodard, who was a big television star at the time, was thankfully affordable and cast in the leading male role. Ingrid Pitt, who was also a Hammer horror film star like Christopher Lee, had a minor yet memorable role as the librarian. And famed Swedish model Britt Eklund played the leading female role of Willow. So really, this was a pretty decent cast for that budget. Yeah, not bad. What a lot of newcomers to the film might not realize is that The Wicker Man is kind of a musical. Uh, uh, (laughs) Like we mentioned earlier. Oh my god. Corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs are funny. (laughs) I cannot with those opening credits. I was like, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, oh man, I forgot about this. And then I walk around all day going, corn rigs and barley rigs. And everybody around me is like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) And you're like, you've never seen The Wicker Man? I know. Get with the times. Okay. So yeah. So this film is a musical. Surprise. (laughs) According to director Robin Hardy in an interview with Vic Pratt, quote, I thought it would be fun and entertaining and probably truthful if we used folk songs. Nearly all of Robert Burns' great poems have been put to music, so we used those, and then there were ones that were cooked up and sounded more Victorian, like The Landlord's Daughter. Yikes. That song is a big yikes. <laughs> Uh, So behind the soundtrack was the Italian-American playwright and musician Paul Giovanni, who somehow tapped straight into British folk tradition. And he, I think he like went around and also recorded uh, people singing their folk songs. And some of these songs uh, actually had never been put onto like a CD or like a, a record ever before. So like this was the first time that these some of these songs had been actually recorded. Wow, that's so wild. Uh songs like like the Maypole song um is nice because it sort of already tells you like what's going on and you don't have to worry about like getting any backstory in like dialogue form. You get it through music, just like, you know, a musical or an opera would be. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's some people are turned off by it. I think it's sort of a hit or miss with people, but <sighs> I I I love it. It's great. And not everyone does, but and I understand, but I think it's just it just adds to the absurdity of it all. It really does. So, filming officially began in October of 1972 and was shot in a variety of small Scottish towns, including Creetown in Galloway in southwest Scotland. The climax of the film was shot on the clifftops at Burrow Head, and really, until recently, the stumps of the prop used as the wicker man in the film remained visible. But these have been gradually eroded by souvenir hunters. Oh, wow. I'm surprised that that wasn't, like, preserved. Well, eh, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. know. It's You would think that it would have been for, like, tourism, but right. it wasn't. People just chipped it away and they are like, thanks, and now it's, like, completely gone. So, after the film was finished, studio heads claimed that the ending was too dismal and that Sergeant Howie should be saved by the cavalry. No! No, director Robin Hardy didn't think so either, and he would not hear of it, and he was willing to risk the film being discarded completely before changing that ending. Good for him. So eventually, The Wicker Man was hacked to pieces in the editing room. The studio demanded it be shortened so that it could play as a B-movie next to the A-film Don't Look Now, which is a horror drama based on Daphne Demure's short story by the same name. 
Roger Corman, who distributed the film in the USA, had also cut the film down to size in a different edit. So there are now officially three infamous versions of The Wicker Man. There's the short version, the medium version, also known as the final cut, and the director's cut, which wouldn't see the light of day until 2001. Wow. However, the missing scenes uh, from the director's cut came from a badly damaged telescene videotape, which did not transfer well. Oh, man. Yeah, and if you watch, like, the full-length version, you'll see, like, they're kind of, they look pretty messy. Um, In 2013, European distributors of the film Studio Canal began a Facebook campaign to find the missing original full-length film, and they thought their campaign was successful when a discovery of The Wicker Man was found at Harvard University. Hmm. However, it proved to only be the medium version, a.k.a. the final cut of the film. To this day, the original full-length version has not been found, and it is considered lost. Ah. Yeah, so upon its release in England, The Wicker Man received mixed to negative reviews. Even though it wasn't accepted at first by its homeland, it would be hailed by audiences in the U.S. in 1977, when the American horror magazine Cinefantastique called it, quote, the Citizen Kane of horror films. Wow. So The Wicker Man is now considered a cult classic among horror and B-movie fans alike, and it's widely considered an intelligent horror film that was made before its time. And Christopher Lee stated in multiple interviews before his passing that it was his favorite film that he worked on. Aww. According to film critic Derek Malcolm, quote, you can't help smiling at the audacity of it all and shivering a little at the feel-bad ending, unquote. Mm. Yeah. So, Abby, with that said, would you please remind us all of the plot? I sure will. On a small island off the coast of Scotland, a conservative and devoutly Christian officer by the name of Sergeant Howie begins his search for a missing young girl named Rowan Morrison. The inhabitants of Summer Isle are quirky and not very helpful in the officer's search for details of the girl's disappearance, even after being shown a picture of the missing young girl. Aside from the strange and unusual behavior that he encounters, Sergeant Howie soon learns that these citizens adhere to a pagan-like religion that pays homage to the old gods. In his exploration of Summer Isle, he finds that life is vastly different from his own on the mainland. The citizens use strange homeopathic medicine. They dance naked during rituals in broad daylight and are very free and open about sex and reproduction. At the inn where he is staying, he is almost seduced by the landlord's daughter, but resists and remains a virgin wholly dedicated to his Christian beliefs. Howie gets the runaround from everyone, as some people claim not to know Rowan, while others claim to know her very well. He even tracks down Rowan's mother, May, who claims to know nothing of her supposed daughter. She even goes as far as to introduce Howie to her quote-unquote real daughter, Myrtle. He questions Myrtle about Rowan, and she tells him that Rowan is a hare that runs free through the wild. He asks the school teacher next, along with a group of schoolgirls, where Rowan is. They deny knowing anything about her, but when he asks to see the roster of the school, her name is on the list. In a private conversation with the school teacher, he learns that Rowan has been buried in the old churchyard, but they believe that she isn't really dead. She has just taken another form. In an effort to obtain Rowan's death certificate after finding her burial site, Howie is introduced to Lord Summer Isle and he learns of his long lineage on the island. The Lord's grandfather was the founder of the island's religious practices and lifestyle, and he explains the heritage and history of the island and that the prosperity of the previous generations was due to the scientific experimentation of his grandfather. He basically bred fruit trees that would flourish in Scotland's climate. Much to Howie's dismay, they believe that through sacrifice and worship of the old gods, it would help these hardy plants to provide for and make the island a prosperous place for everyone who lives there. Utterly horrified, Howie intends to exhume the body of Rowan to uncover the truth of what might be going on here. Upon doing so, he finds a hare in Rowan's place and brings the dead animal's body to Lord Summerisle, demanding answers. 
However, he claims that she has transmuted into another form and no longer exists. Frustrated, Howie investigates further and learns that Rowan was actually the May Queen, and she was supposed to bring a bountiful harvest to the island. But that year, the crops suffered a blight, so he believes that she will be killed for failing to bring forth enough produce to sustain the island. The citizens of Summer Isle prepare for a parade and the supposed human sacrifice of Rowan, and Howie knows that he must stop the entire thing before she is killed. He ties up the innkeeper and steals his costume, blending in with the rest of Summer Isle as they parade through town and out to the cliffs, wearing animal masks and theatrical outfits, playing music and dancing along. He is dressed as the Joker, and the parade was actually a trap. Rowan was the bait that brought Sergeant Howie to the island, and we learned that they needed a proper sacrifice to appease their gods, an adult who came to the island of his own free will and was a virgin. In a frightening twist, Sergeant Howie is stripped naked, marked with ceremonial paint, and dressed in a white gown. His hands are bound, and he is led to a gigantic wicker man constructed by the people of Summer Isle. He is forced inside the statue, and everyone gathers around as the entire thing is set ablaze. The crowd plays music and sways along in an eerie exaltation to their old gods. That ending still gives me chills, It's so creepy. It really is. The first time I saw this, I was like, wow, that that did a 180, that's for sure. (laughs) So let's talk about the Bechdel test. It actually passes. Yay! There's a scene between Mae Morrison and her daughter Myrtle, and they talk about a frog, and they talk about how the frog is going to cure Myrtle's sore throat. Mm, That poor girl. Let me just shove this frog in your throat real quick. That sounds like something an anti-vaxxer would do. Oh, hot takes! Okay, so let's look at Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Even though there are a few very prominent roles played by women, the majority of the cast is male. So did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Everyone, and I mean everyone in this film, is white. Were there any openly LGBTQ plus characters in the film? Nope. And we'll talk a little bit about that, too. Mm-hmm. So let's get into our discussion. How accurate is the lore that's presented in The Wicker Man? So the druids among the ancient Celts left no written records explaining their rituals and beliefs. Everything that we think we know about them comes from outsider information, including Gaelic Christian monks and Romans. In fact, the Wicker Man ritual was first described by Julius Caesar in Book 6 of the Gallic War. Caesar wrote, quote, The whole Gallic race is addicted to religious ritual. Consequently, those suffering from serious maladies or subject to the perils of battle sacrifice human victims. Some weave huge figures of wicker and fill their limbs with humans who are then burned to death when the figures are set afire. They suppose that the gods prefer this execution to be applied to thieves, robbers, and other malefactors taken in the act. But in default of such, they resort to the execution of the innocent, unquote. Yikes. According to Cecil Adams, Caesar wasn't the type to retail wild stories. On the other hand, he evidently hadn't witnessed a wicker man sacrifice himself. And as far as I can tell, no other classical author mentions it. So it's hard to say how common this practice really was, unquote. However, Ned Kelly, keeper of antiquities at the National Museum of Ireland, thinks otherwise. 
Kelly believes that a recent discovery of bog bodies found in Ireland have proven that the Celts did in fact practice human sacrifice. In an interview with the Irish Examiner, Kelly states in regards to the bog bodies discovered that, quote, they may have their throats cut, have been stabbed in the heart, and have other cut marks. However, it is absolutely not torture, but a form of ritual sacrifice, unquote. Wow, man. That is... Maybe the Celts did sacrifice people, or I'm thinking maybe they just killed criminals ethically. But honestly, in my opinion, the bog bodies still don't really prove anything, especially the Wicker Man theory. Like, I'm not an expert, but when I hear that, I'm just like, okay, but I just feel like I would want more information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was another recent archaeological find, and that might prove that the Celts did burn people in Wicker Man. Um, according to the article Burning Men, the Myth of the Wicker Man in Celtic Europe, quote, During the first century BC, the Celtic tribes in Thrace, I think it's how you pronounce it, produced a large number of silver tedectrums of the Thassos type. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> apparently... It's uh, like a Celtic coin. Okay. And on the coin, there's a depiction of a colossus figure with a burning head. Uh, there, I guess the head can also sort of look like a wheel okay. as well. And they're thinking that this figure on the coin is a wicker man. Wow. I guess that sounds pretty good, but I don't... I don't think it has any grounds to prove a wicker man actually existed, though. I don't know. I'm still really skeptical about it. I think that the the proof, quote unquote, that the that people have found, I don't. To me, I don't think is enough. But yeah, if anything, it to me it sounds like um, like those golden cow statues that they used to make to like put people in, and then they would like put them over a fire as like a form of torture. That's mm-hmm. what it reminds me of. And like right. The fact that sorry, it was Julius Caesar, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. The fact that Julius Caesar like wrote about this, I don't know, it just reminds me of that like sort of Greek Roman thing. Maybe it was like a misinterpretation, I don't know. Maybe because he wasn't actually writing what he was seeing. He it was just hearsay. Yeah. So, so you can he only didn't write, even actually like, witness anything. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, with that said, how does this questionable pagan past affect the story and the characters in the 1973 movie The Wicker Man? To me, I think it kind of makes this all more frightening. Yeah. Our next topic is questionable beliefs, paganism, and Christianity. So, Mikkel Coven has a great essay called The Folklore Fallacy. It's in the show notes if you guys want to read it. It's wonderful. And he states that, quote, The folklore discourse within The Wicker Man coalesces around the film's reconstruction of an imaginary Celtic pagan past. Let me say that again. An imaginary Celtic pagan past, (laughs) which has been revived on the remote Scottish island by the fictional lard Lord Summerisle, (laughs) who is played by Christopher Lee. In this respect, the film attempts to diegetically revive an unselfconsciously Victorian perception of Celtic paganism. Specifically, the film's titular set piece, in which the film's protagonist, Sergeant Howie, is burned alive at the film's conclusion in a sacrifice to the goddess Nuada to assure the island's agrarian prosperity. And it's based largely on the description of this rite in Sir James Fraser's The Golden Bow, which we mentioned earlier. But it is this interpretation of Fraser of seeing the Golden Bow as a historical rather than folkloristic description, which colors the entire film's folkloristic discourse, unquote. Whew. So... In a really weird kind of meta way, the filmmakers truly believed that they were making a horror film based on real-life pagan rituals from the past, but they weren't. Uh, If only Google existed back then. (laughs) The Wicker Man ritual is still considered hearsay to this day. 
Now, that's insane to me. And I think that this makes it even more scary because let's compare that to the fictional characters on this island who, within the story, truly believe their crops will grow again by sacrificing this guy. But their beliefs are based on some Victorian asshole's idea of paganism. Yeah. So it's not even based in truth. It's based in hearsay. Now, how does all of this compare to Sergeant Howley's beliefs in Christianity? Well, according to Philip Coppins, quote, with his sacrifice to the pagan god, Howley now becomes like Christ, his example, himself. He is sacrificed for the goods of mankind, the people of the earth, unquote. But, you know, at first... Howie believes in the resurrection and he tells everyone this, right? He's like, I believe in the resurrection and I'll have eternal life in heaven with Lord Jesus Christ and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Then he begins to panic and he tries to reason with all of the inhabitants of Summer Isles saying that sacrificing him won't actually work and that next year they'll probably have to sacrifice Lord Summer Isle. And he's trying to do all he can to spook them enough into not killing him. And it still doesn't work. So when Howie is taken to the wicker man, he calls out to God and to Christ. And he's not doing it to swear. He's doing it because he's pleading for God and Christ to save him. Yeah. And when he's in the wicker man, he preaches the word of God and he sings hymns. And then he privately prays until he calls out to Daniel. And I actually couldn't hear what he was saying. Like when he's just dying and he's like, Daniel! Daniel! I was like, what is he saying? I couldn't understand him. So I put on the subtitles. And that is what he's saying. He's calling out to Daniel. Now, Daniel in the Bible was a Christian man who was sacrificed by Darius the Great to the lion's den. And this is because Darius wanted his people to worship him like a god. So Daniel refused, being a good Christian, he refused. And that was why he was put into the lion's den so that he could be torn apart. But Daniel, however, was not eaten by the lions. Instead, God saved him and he tamed the lions. So this Bible story is, of course, told to teach Christians about the promises and faithfulness of God, even if it feels like, you know, everything has been lost. Mm -hmm. So Howie truly hopes that God will save him like Daniel because he, he thinks he's done everything right. Like he's been pure. He hasn't had sex. And, you know, he goes to mass and he tries to convert the people. He puts crosses up you know, in the pagan grounds, like he feels like he's done everything right, but God doesn't save him. And how he dies. I think that's really scary. Like that whole idea of, of almost like he goes through almost like the stages of grief. I was just gonna say, yeah, it's like a serious emotional roller coaster for him. Yeah, he goes from accepting it. And then he goes to like, full on panic. And then to like crying and then to being like, positive about it and like yes like I'm dying like a martyr and then he like recoils and like prays privately and then he just screeches in pain in desperation like Daniel Daniel like save me like Daniel and then he doesn't he dies oh it's like having the rug ripped out from under you like everything that you believe and like the faith that you have is just not enough to save you no and you know we don't know if his sacrifice saved Summer Isle either. Yeah. So really, everyone is fucked. <laughs> it's just a bad time. It's not a cool party. Yeah. So one of the themes I think that works well with this part of the Wicker Man movie is, you know, the dangers of becoming a zealot. Howie seems almost shocked, right, that he is going to die and not be saved because he is without sin and he has boundless faith. But what he's forgotten, I think, is love thy neighbor. And even Jesus said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do when he was being crucified. And Howie just prays for his own safety and survival. He also comes from a religion that was started, that started the Crusades and killed innocents during the witch trials and oppressed the LGBTQ plus community and has abused people of color and women and children and outright denied clear and provable science. 
And as Nick, I think his name is Bujeja, Bujija. Oh, I wish I, I couldn't pronounce his last name. Nick says in their article, The Wicker Man and the Dangers of Zealotry, extremism, whether of a Christian, religious, or perhaps political sort, is bound to compel otherwise. One would hope rational creatures to commit lamentable acts of undue cruelty and barbarism. So, really, whose beliefs are right? And the scary thing is, none of them, probably. I mean, even atheists have faith that nothing happens to them after they die. I know. But what if they're wrong? And they go through life not believing in anything, and then they're confronted with something, you know? Yeah. I mean, everybody believes something. That's a very interesting look on, like, what this film could mean in a more modern scope. Like, if we wanted to get a little bit political here, I think it's... I will. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that there are left and right-wing extremists, right? Like, there's there's zealots on both sides. I mean, we see it all the time because that kind of news is... It's constantly in our faces. And this whole film kind of reminds me of, like, the 2016 election. Oh, (laughs) no. Because, like... We kind of shot ourselves in the foot as a country. Like, if we were to throw this in a political arena, it would work super well because there's a lot of, like, trickery and deception and, like, being so immersed in your own beliefs and, like, the plot of this film becomes dangerous. So, like, if we broaden the horizon on the meaning of this a little bit, it applies brilliantly to what it means to be an extremist, like you said. But I like that it also questions the relativity of belief systems, which is a huge issue in our country, like especially when it comes to the rights of women and our like bodily autonomy, basically, like when a belief system is put so staunchly in place that there's no room for choice outside of that belief system, people die. And the irony of this whole thing is that a Christian man who would, like, for sure be pro-life in reality, is killed for the quote-unquote greater good of a society in which he wants no part. And he's trying to save a child. And, like, although the statue is this, like, wicker man, he is returned to the womb. Like, he literally dies in the torso of the statue. Oh, man, as in, like, his... The sex is the gender. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's he's betraying the biology and beliefs of his religion and upbringing by dying in the womb of a male figure. And it's almost as if he's defying like his own human nature and like his connection to his religion. So it's like the ultimate sin against his God. And yet the people of Summer Isle see it as this great thing, which is like sort of what happens when a woman dies in real life because she couldn't control her own body. So, like, I'm talking about this in the context of, like, abortion, if that makes sense. Like, you weren't kidding when you said that this film was meta because there are, it's just, like, wrapped up in so many different layers and, like, all these beliefs and it's kind of trippy how they're almost the same people just on opposite ends of the spectrum. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is two forces with the same exact strength, and they are just pushing against each other. Yes. And they're not going anywhere because of it. Yeah. It's super frustrating to watch, too, because if you're seeing this as the outsider and you're like, if you would just freaking listen for one goddamn second. (laughs) Right, because neither one of them listened to the other. Uh. And I think we're sort of meant to be on Summer Isle's side when they're having that little, you know, they're talking about it in his house. And they're com- they're basically like, instead of comparing their penises, they're comparing their religions. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, both of them have really good points. In fact, their points that they make are, are mirror images of each other. So they're at a standstill. Yeah, they are. Because you, I mean, you can't. You just cannot force anything. You can't force someone to believe something. So No, especially when their beliefs are so similar to yours. Like he says, 
um, you know, these the these young women who are dancing through the fire are trying to be impregnated by uh, the ghost of, or the god of fertility. And Howie is just like, that's ridiculous. And then Summerisle's like, yeah, but didn't your lord was born from a virgin? Like, yeah. impregnated by a ghost. It's literally the same thing. I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. So let's uh, talk about out with the new and in with the old. Oh, oh, I see. See See what I did there? Yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we talked a little about this in our episode about the Vivitch uh, (laughs) for more recent times, but in the early 1970s, after the failed revolution of the 1960s, there was a resurgence of old practices again then, too. So according to Vic Pratt, quote, the political fervor of the counterculture might have been damped down, but the yearning to replace the old order with something more authentic and spiritually fulfilling still smoldered beneath the surface. It wasn't gone, just insidiously embedding itself within the British cultural spectrum. Many longed for a return to spiritual values, though not those of the previous generation. Folk custom, witchcraft, and the occult were no longer absurdities. They might also be an option. Certainly, old-fashioned movie monsters were passé and could no longer be taken seriously. The monsters of modernity were the breadheads, politicians, big business, corporations, all ravaging the nation. The Wicker Man, the film, was worryingly contemporary. Imagine the potential hoo-ha over a film about an island full of unmarried pagans who brazenly get it on outdoors with the women on top, no less, before cheerfully touching a Christian policeman while they have a rusing sing-along and nobody turns up to rescue him. And that transitions perfectly into our next topic. You don't hate the Wicker Man, you just hate capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) So how does one take control over a generation that is changing? Uh, One that needs motivation and meaning and is interested in witchcraft. Well, you use that against them and make them work for you. (laughs) So Lord Summer Isle's grandfather, the asshole Victorian, needed to find a way for the people of the island to work for him, to believe in his weird fruit and vegetable experiments. (laughs) And he got them to do it by converting them to his own type of strange paganism, and not because he was a true believer and wanted to spread the word, but because he wanted them to work harder. So to continue Vic Pratt's quote, he says, The Wicker Man was not a simplistic film which depicted counterculture free spirits as heroes and uptight authorities as fools. Lord Sumrile, trendily polo-necked, down with the kids, but still ultimately land-owning gentry, 
is out for his own ends. His propagation of pagan belief, a handy tool for the control of his island serfs. Yikes. Oh, man. Yep. So William Hughes has an excellent essay uh, on the Wicker Man, and that's titled A Strange Kind of Evil, Superficial Paganism and False Ecology in the Wicker Man. And one of the points that Hughes raises is the fact that despite Summer Isle's seemingly utopian feudal society in which man and nature commingle according to pagan principles, capitalism still festers beneath its surface, as depicted through their quote-unquote renowned Summer Isle famous fruits, which are exported to the outside world. And, you know, Hughes says they, quote, glamorize and commodify a humble, supposedly natural produce. And the two-part structure of these names indicates a sustained and selective strain of development as much as they lay claim to the island's ownership of its fruits. So it's all just a big hoax. Yeah, you know, this is almost like, it reminds me of, like, the commercialization of paganism and witchcraft that we see today like it's mm-hmm. actually a really perfect example like the time sephora tried to sell those witch kits <laughs> and i was like oh god i i rolled into the next century but i mean like <laughs> aside from that like i'll return to my little like political stance here summer isle the man is like the one percent Like, he's using his power to blame the failed crops on a poor sacrifice to the old gods. And in Mm -hmm. reality, like, his system is failing. And the science that his grandfather developed isn't perfect, and it's completely unsustainable, just like the economy that our English forefathers helped cultivate. Yep. So, like, this echoes a lot of what we see in our society now. Like, the rich don't want to take the fall for our rickety economy and it basically only benefits the already rich so like in modern times we blame laziness and drugs and entitlements on impoverished people while big corporations get away with murder like, like literally they literally get away with murder yeah, yeah it's it's absurd but after generations of preaching this notion to people like of course it will stick and unfortunately like my good friend marilyn manson says we can't see the forest for the trees so like it's it's almost like it's too close to us in order for us to be like this is wrong. Just like how the people of Summer Isle are so secluded on their own island and like they don't know anything else except this guy who is like, just listen to what I tell you to do and you'll be fine. So we don't have this in our notes, but this is absolutely like we can can then compare like what politicians or rich people who are, you know, call themselves Christian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how they control the people by controlling their beliefs in Christianity. Yeah. I mean, it's a vehicle for their stupid rhetoric that is actually completely false and meaningless most of the time. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the women in The Wicker Man. Okay. Is this a feminist film? So I have a few quotes here, and then we can discuss, like, what we think. So both Robin Hardy, the director, and Anthony Schaefer, the screenwriter, has have stated that they don't, they didn't intentionally try to say anything about gender politics in this film. So there's that. That's <laughs> what everyone says. That is literally what, like, every movie maker says, especially during this time period. You know, maybe that's true, but... Because it's so ingrained in our system, you can't help but then look at a film that way. Right. Maybe you didn't intentionally do anything, but to me, when you don't intentionally do something, it's really interesting to see, like, where do you lie personally in gender politics by the art that you're creating without intent? So. So I don't know this person's real name, but they go by Amanda of Happiness, and they said on their blog post, quote, 
uh, the women of Summer Isle are in complete control of their sexuality. So she believes that the film is very feminist. Hmm. She goes on saying, quote, the women on the island copulate when and wherever they want. Howie observes this in disgust when he first arrives upon the island and sees couples openly having sex in the fields. Howie is also a target of seduction by Willow, the daughter of the landlord of the Green Man Inn. Howie staunchly sticks to his Christian beliefs and refuses to have sex with the comely Willow. Upon viewing an extended edition of the film, the viewer realizes that Willow finds herself to be the goddess of love made flesh. Willow embraces this tangible incarnation and chooses to have numerous consensual, casual sex partners. To Willow, each sex act is a sacrifice for the goddess that resides within her. It is imperative to note that the women and teenage girls of Summer Isle are not doing naked rituals to be leered at by the male gaze. In lieu of that, the women of Summer Isle are partaking in such rituals in order to be impregnated by a god of their own free will. The nudity, as Lord Summer Isle aptly stated, is a safety measure, unquote. <laughs> yes. So their clothes don't catch fire. <laughs> However, the unknown writer for the blog Feminist Cinema disagrees. This person says, quote, Women have the freedom to choose their sex partners and explore their sexuality, not restricted by male authorities. Nevertheless, the community is hierarchical. The lord of the island controls the village with authority, and there is a strong cult for phallic symbols. Mm -hmm. And leaning more towards this film isn't very feminist, I actually argue that the women don't have a free choice to choose a sex partner. Mm -hmm. If they're male, then maybe, yeah. But if a woman wants to be with another woman, I don't think that they would allow that. I think that'd be frowned upon because it's, they're all about like fertility and getting pregnant and their crops growing. Like everything is about fertility and that's, that would be the opposite of, of what they're going for. So I bet you they would not allow lesbian and gay relationships. Probably not. And I mean, like, I'm going to go ahead and state my whole no gods, no masters rule here from good old Margaret Sanger. I don't think that religion, politics, like anything like that should dictate what a woman can and cannot do with her body. I think it appears as though the women in Summer Isle are sexually liberated, but I, I don't think they are. Like, they seem to sacrifice their bodies for their religion. And yes. there are all these rituals in the community built around the fertility of men and women alike, but the men still hold more power as the phallic symbol holds the most meaning for the rebirth of their religion. And, like, as we see in the scene of the girls, like, in the schoolhouse, it's totally backwards. Like, women traditionally are seen as fertile you know, if you, like, look through history and if you've ever taken an art history class, then you know, like, that little statue that they found, like, a hundred bajillion years ago? Yes. She was, like, a universal symbol for fertility. So Right. Like, she was, like, very, um... Like, voluptuous. Yeah. <laughs> that all resulted in, like, this idea of fertility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the other side of this coin is that... Perhaps this film defies gender rules. Like, typically, virgin women are sacrifices, but this kind of turns that trope on its head. And I haven't really seen another situation like this in a film that I can think of personally. I can't think of anything off the top of my head either. Yeah, and you typically see women as, like, the sacrifice because they're seen as expendable, like a means to an end, because men are too valuable. So this is kind of like, I don't know, like, I could kind of see it both ways, but ultimately, I don't feel like it's a feminist film. I definitely see both parts of it as well, but I think you really hit the nail on the head there when you said that they are sexually liberated because of their religion rather than because they personally want to. Right. Like, what if, 
what if a woman likes being prudish and conservative and doesn't want to have sex right away? Like, what if that is like their choice to not do that? Yeah, Are they or they're be pressured asexual. into having. Right. Are they going to be pressured into having sex? And it's like, and and then again, what if they're you know not heterosexual? Like, what if they desire someone of the same sex or pansexual? You know, it's like, what if they want something else, but they're required to to have sex with just the person of the opposite sex of them, you know? So right. I don't think women are as free as they seem. I think you were right. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into our final thought. An eco horror film, global warming and plant manipulation in The Wicker Man. So according to James Rogers, quote, If green living, homesteading, going back to the earth, alternative medicine, and a bunch of other trends all went terribly wrong, we might find ourselves in a place like that of the Wicker Man. Basically, this is the nightmare world anti-environmentalist picture if we take climate change seriously. Yeah, so the thing is that a future where we can actually live off the earth is slowly but surely withering away, so to speak. And I think I read somewhere that by 2040, they said that the earth is going to be a real shit show of a place. Oh, great. Like coral reefs will probably be gone by then. Like a lot of different resources are going to be gone by 2040. And I mean, that's not that far from now. That's like 20 (laughs) years from now. God. But um, maybe we should sacrifice all of the old white guys who don't believe in climate change then. <laughs> Do it. Just kidding. Just kidding. But seriously, mm. this utopian future will not exist in the near future. It's it's almost impossible at this point. And instead, we might actually have to live like the people of Summer Isle with fake fruit and vegetables that don't work because of the constant bad weather. Ah, yes. Delicious government-issued food. I think it's kind of interesting that um, a rowan tree is a symbol of wisdom and growth and new life. And Sergeant Howie either spends his like this whole time believing she's dead or she's nowhere to be found like that real ancient care and knowledge of the earth is either dead or forgotten because everyone acts like they have no idea where she's gone they're like i don't know yeah sure whatever and it's like what we're facing now as people turn a blind eye to real science and truth about what is actually happening to the earth yep it's like A supernatural 1984, kind of. Yes. Like, like we succumb to the earth that we've totally managed to obliterate, and we put people in power out of desperation. And, like, we're pretty much, like, 75% of the way there, which is a bummer. But (laughs) I think that if we take stuff like this as an actual serious warning, like, maybe we won't have to resort to that. Yeah, maybe we won't have to, maybe we won't have to sacrifice people. (laughs) Although, all those old white dudes that don't believe in science, I'm like, I'm not saying I'm okay with it, but I'm okay with it. (laughs) Summer is a coming. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, boy. Well, you guys, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers and TV shows and new movies over there. And if you become a patron of like a certain tier, you'll actually get some, you know, cute gifts and stuff too. So head on over there and become a patron, won't you? Yeah, and you can also help support the show by following us on social media, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.